Hi, I'm Stacey Schumacher-Rowan, Editor-in-Chief of Hospitality Design Magazine with HD's What I've Learned podcast. Today, I spoke to Hong Kong-based designer and architect Joyce Wang. Joyce's experimental, immersive, and bold design aesthetic has been on our radar for the last decade. She was named to our Wave of the Future class in 2014 when she had only a couple of projects under her belt, including the career-defining ammo and Mott 32 restaurants in Hong Kong. Since then, she continues to impress. One of her notable launches last year was the spa and fitness component of the inaugural Equinox Hotel in Hudson Yards, New York. It embodies her skills as a designer. She takes time to understand the context of the project and then, she says, she chips away at it until it reveals something beautiful. It's this thoughtful approach to design that led us to name Joyce as our 2020 Designer of the Year, who will celebrate, along with all of our winners and finalists, during this year's HD Awards celebration in October. Hi, I'm here with Joyce Wang. Joyce, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Stacey. It's nice to be here. I know. It's so good to hear your voice. How are you doing? How are you doing amidst, you know, COVID and, you know, getting back to work? Um, it's been it's been really nice, actually. I mean, up and downs, I would say. Um, crazy, but crazy good. And uh, I've been in Hong Kong most of the time. And um, as you know, we've had it, um, uh, you know, pretty good here. Um, people have been very cautious, um, although we've just had a spike recently, which has meant going back to lockdown mode a bit more. Yeah. How have it, how's work been? I mean, has it continued? Have you seen some, you know, projects put on hold? What's been the fluctuation of your business lately? Uh, it's, it's been mixed for us. Um, so recently there's kind of been an influx of RFPs and kind of new business opportunities coming in. Um, two weeks prior to that, it, it was very, very quiet. Um, and just isolating Hong Kong itself as um, a project location we've had next to no work coming out of Hong Kong because of the protests, which has been really sad, being that we're based here in Hong Kong. Um, London's doing really well. Um, luckily, the projects that some of the, you know, the, the biggest projects that we're working on, they're kind of three to five years out. Um, they're kind of new build hotels. So in many ways, the funding for those have already been secured and, you know, we can continue working on those. There's been a couple of unfortunate um, setbacks with um, clients who are either building hotels or restaurants, you know, out of their own pockets. And that's meant slowing those down um, right up. Well, let's turn to you and we can get to, you know, your firm and your projects in a little bit. So, Tell us a little bit about your background. Did you always know you wanted to be a designer? Was it something, you know, from an early age you knew or was it something you kind of discovered? Uh, it was something that, and in a tier designer, no, I never knew. Um, I, I think I'd always loved math and physics and I, I always loved drawing and architecture was the best combination of, you know, being able to study um, both um, I think interior design really fell on my lap when I started working at Norman Foster's. Um, I found myself kind of detailing um, staircase packages, you know, um, uh, luggage belts in, in airports. And I was kind of yearning to work with materials. Um, and I remember going into the material library and it was 
Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, and I thought, I, you know, I, I think, you know, I want to, you know, play with color. I want to look at uh, materials with different textures. So that was kind of how it became a bit more obvious. Okay, but before we get to Foster, did you, where did you grow up? Did you grow up in Hong Kong? I grew up, yes, I grew up in Hong Kong. My parents, um, uh, they're still here. Um, I was educated in the UK and then in the US, but yeah, I've spent most of my life in Hong Kong. And did you have any early memories of design or did anyone, or architecture even, or hospitality, did anyone in your family, you know, influence you at all as you grew up and to head into that line of work? Uh, I remember one of my first memories of, of knowing what an architect or what that word even meant was when I went with my mom to um, the bank. <laughs> I was just following her up. Um, I remember going up these escalators and it was actually in, in one of Foster's buildings in Hong Kong. Um, the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank building, um, which is a beautiful building. And there are these escalators that uh, one going up, one coming down, it kind of cuts through this glass belly of a building and underneath it's a public square. Um, I remember going up and thinking, oh, wow, like I feel, I remember feeling something from it. And I couldn't at that time, you know, put my finger on it. But looking back, you know, I felt like a million dollars, you know, going in this incredible building. But, you know, my mom was starting a, a bank account for me. And even though it was like not a huge amount of money, I, it was incredible how big I felt in that space um, and how important it made me feel. Um, and I asked my mom, I was like, who makes these like buildings? And she was like, architects. And that's when I thought, I think I want to be one of those. <laughs> <laughs> so fun. And very, yeah. very serendipitous. That was one of Foster's projects. Yes. So what led you to go to school, leave Hong Kong, go to school in the UK and then the States? And where did you go? Um, I think going to the UK, that's kind of a, a traditional like Hong Kong family um, path uh, to take, I guess. Um, it was kind of the thing um, that my brother did, my cousins. And, and so I followed. Um, and then going into going to the US, um, my father was educated um, in the U.S. and so was my mom, actually. So um, they both felt, you know, it was a system that, um, you know, would be probably beneficial for us. And, you know, at the time I applied to both U.K. and U.S. schools and I ended up going to MIT. Um, and, you know, I knew that they had an architecture program at the same time. I didn't want to cut short the opportunity of maybe studying physics or math. Um, so that was kind of always um, on the cards. And so you so you ended up living in quite a few places, Hong Kong, the UK, Boston for MIT. How is, you know, experiencing all these different areas and countries in, influenced your work today? Um, I think it's made me commit to not having a style per se, um, but more of a discipline and wanting to understand different cultures because of how enriching those experiences can be, you know, just living in these different places. And I lived in LA for a couple of years after graduating um, from the Royal College in London. And I remember on the flight back home to Hong Kong, you know, I thought to myself, I've lived in LA for two years and I've learned so much from this experience. I, I don't ever want to forget and, and lose 
that it it opened up you know so much more in terms of my understanding of design aesthetics um my understanding of hospitality you know what it meant to um for uh, different people what materials meant you know how it was different to have meetings even in in LA you know the the culture that a place can bring um and using that kind of to enrich my own design palette like that's something that I think I'll always want to have yeah and was your first job out of college with um Lord Norman Foster or was did you have another job first before going to him um, yeah, no, Foster was my first job. Um, and I worked for him in London studio. Um, that was, uh, just before I went to the RCA, the Royal college, and I worked on three different airports. I, and what was it like working with him? What did you learn from him? Um, or those projects? I was, I was a PowerPoint girl. I don't know what, <laughs> what why I was, but it, it ended up that way. I guess, um, I knew all the animations on the program. Um, and I feel like in many ways, you know, in life, you, you kind of don't know the, the ramifications of what you're doing at that time. But looking back, you know, being the PowerPoint girl was actually so, um, so powerful in, in many ways because it was learning about the way, um, Lord Foster would structure, a narrative, you know, and how he would pitch for different projects. So, you know, I, I pitched for the, the, you know, I, I created the pitch for the Frankfurt airport, for example, and how the different slides would be configured, you know, what the content of each slide was, you know, how important it was for him to feature um, the human hand, for example, in a photograph and, and how that would play into um, the greater presentation. Um, you know, looking back that, that actually feeds into um, how I tell stories and and how important that is for our studio. Right. And I love what you say that you don't realize what you're doing when you're doing it or, you know, what effect it will have, but, you know, that probably set you up for, you know, all the presentations that you're, you do now. (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) Maybe not in PowerPoint, but maybe in something else. (laughs) Yeah. No longer PowerPoint, but yeah. And how long did you work for him? And then did you go on to another studio or is that when you decided to launch your own firm? So I worked for him for a year and that was just before grad school. So I went on to grad school um, after a year of working there, um, went to the Royal College. And at the time it, it, you know, my intent was always to go back to the U.S. for grad school. Um, I had I applied to um, a bunch of places in the U.S. And what happened was, um, uh, my husband and then boyfriend at the time, he took me to a meeting with Will, Will Alsop, um, who's, you know, an incredible architect in the UK. And, um, he happened to be Stefan's, um, tutor at the time. And he said to me, you know, Joyce, why don't you apply to schools in the UK for grad school? Um, I told him I knew nothing about them. He was like, go visit, you know, the summer shows and the summer shows in, um, the UK and London specifically for design schools is a huge deal. Um, you know, students use it as a big opportunity to, to showcase their work on a public level. So I remember going to see, you know, this incredible work produced by students and thinking, wow, you know, this is really exciting. Um, and, 
you know, being in the UK wasn't planned and, it, and you know, attending the Royal College wasn't something that um, I'd ever dreamt of. But, you know, I ended up going there and um, the experience was really difficult. <laughs> I was really thrown in on the deep end. Um, and, you know, I'll remin- reminisce with other alumni on how uh, testing um, that whole kind of uh, graduate program is, but it really makes you, um, I-, I feel like really makes you stronger if it doesn't kill you kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> and so real quick, so why did you decide to, well, two things. So from MIT, you went to Foster. How did you even get that job? I mean, it's, it's probably a highly coveted job. Um you know, how did you decide to go to him? And then also, why did you decide to go to grad school? Why did you think you needed that next layer? Um, with Foster, I I had sent in my CV and um, I flew to London. I was like, I'm not sure whether they're going to interview me, but I went to the office. I turned up with my portfolio and I just, you know, said, you know, I interned for you. I It wasn't um, you know, something that was, uh, well paid, um, at <laughs> all, but, um, <laughs> but it was, it was definitely something that I knew I wanted to do. Um, so it, it was lucky enough that, um, at the time I landed in the group, um, it was group three, which spe- um, s- specializes in projects in Asia and they needed somebody who, you know, could read Chinese and, and also translate some Chinese documents. So it, it so happened I had some of the skill set. <laughs> right. Um, and then, so, you, I mean, you're working at Foster. What, why did you decide to leave there to go to grad school? Why did you think you needed that next layer? I think I wanted to, to qualify as an architect at the time. So there was this, this thing of like, you know, part one, part two, part three in the UK where you know, once you're done, you know, part one is kind of the undergrad, part two is the grad, and then part three is what you get from work experience. Um, so I had, you know, part one already, and I wanted to get part two, and I wanted to qualify as an architect. And then what did you do after grad school, after that very intense couple of years? What did you, <laughs> what was your first, first step out? I went back to Hong Kong to look for a job. Um actually looked in London first. I, it was an economic downturn at the time. I couldn't find anything. I went to, um, you know, uh, places like Wilkinson Air, Bureau Happel, you know, very technical, technically driven offices. Um, David Ajay, no, nobody was hiring at the time. Um, and I remember specifically going into Ajay's office and them saying, oh, we're not hiring at the time. In fact, you know, we're, we're actually letting people go. So it was, it was a dire kind of situation. So I went back to Hong Kong and I started applying to different places. And um, um, at the time, uh, a, a friend of mine who was working for a real estate developer said, you know, um, you know, the developer actually owned the Roosevelt Hotel in LA. And she said, I know they're up for renovation. They're looking to hire, hire um, people like Roman Williams and Yabu uh, Pashulberg, uh, you know, but I, you know, my friend knew that, knew that the developer didn't want to spend um, that level of design fees. And she was like, you know, do you think we should pitch for it? And I was like, well, why not? You know, we know they need to get the work done. 
you know, and my friend was working for them, so she had the floor plans. So, you know, out of our kind of um, living room slash bedroom, we put together a scheme. Um, we did animated fly-throughs on um, SketchUp, literally, and then presented it to her boss. Um, <laughs> so that was that was kind of the, you know, that was, that's what instigated the move to L.A., from Hong Kong. So I ended up not finding a job in Hong Kong at all and then moved to LA shortly after. Right. And so is that when you basically launched your own firm with that project? Um, at the time, no, it was, it was really a two man van, um, between my friend and I working in LA. Um, you know, we, we didn't really have a studio at the time, you know, it was very, uh, gray area in the sense that we didn't even know if we had a project you know I was living in LA and designing this hotel but at the same time the client would say we're not sure we want to work with you guys because you're not one you know known uh we're not sure we like what you're doing and maybe we just want to work with you Albert Pushelberg so we it was always kind of this contentious situation of are we hired are we not we have a contract but are we going to be fired the next day. So it wasn't this kind of stable situation of like, oh, we have projects on our belt. You know, that was the only lifeline we had. We we either made that one project worked or I was out of LA. Um, and in the end, they built the mock-up room and it went well. So that was kind of a turning point of, you know, the operator Thompson Hotels and the owners, um, downtown properties looking at the market room saying okay we think we're going to roll this out you know it was kind of a dream until that one day right that must have um, been the best day though to hear those words yes <laughs> yeah yeah and what was it like to work on you know such a historic property in LA that was completely unreal it was an incredible opportunity I think um, it was great in the sense that it had a great draw, you know, any suppliers we approached and, and said, you know, we're calling for samples for the Rosa, but we have no issues, you know, kind of getting interest to get bids and, and, you know, get, uh, getting creatives kind of interested to collaborate on the project with us. So that was, um, really the best thing. And, and we had a contractor who, um, would have meetings with us, you know, by the pool. And it was just such a stark contrast to um, what I had experienced in London or Hong Kong. Right. And so how long did you work on the project? You know, what were, what, what were your um, responsibilities there? Um, it was two years, roughly, that we worked on it. Um, we renovated the 60 rooms around um, the David Hockney pool. Um, they call them the cabanas. So it's a two-level kind of um, 50s building. Um, and they're really known as the party rooms. And, you know, the, the brief was really funny in the, in the sense that you know, they're like, you know, how we need a couple of mirror tabletops. We need the hose. We need the room to be completely hosed down um, because it just gets really, you know, partied up in there. You know, people come in and out in their bathing suits. So we need um, upholstery that's outdoor, you know, um, uh, waterproof and, and all this. So, um, yeah, I mean, our scope was everything from 
um, the interiors of the rooms to looking at the outdoor furniture, um, the corridors, artwork, um, basically anything that we could get our hands on with that. What was it about your design, do you think, that you know won over the owners and, and the brand? I think we really tried to listen. Um, we didn't really have an ego of like, oh, we think this is the right way. Um, we actually created a book. Um, you know, we, we made our own um, little flip book, if you will, of the demographic, the guests, um, and stories that were, you know, told on Instagram. And, you know, it was about creating a product that was right for them and not for us. Um, and so, you know, the approach was like, you know, what is what is the right um, palette of materials to use to really appeal to um, the guest and, and really celebrating the idea of the Roosevelt being, you know, this backdrop for scandal, you know, and, and you know, all the staff who work there have tidbits of like gossip stories, you know, what happens after hours and behind the scenes, what they find in the hotel rooms. You know, we compiled a lot of that into this book and, and that in turn like formed you know, our story of what the room should be. How did that process and that project set you up for where you are today? It was not an immediate okay for sure, because, you know, we, we'd done that project and it was this odd anticlimactic, oh, what now, you know? And, you know, you'd think, you know, having done the Roosevelt projects would just come flying in, but it, they didn't, you know, we... We're like, okay, then what next? You know, let's let's do a website. Let's let's showcase this project. But then we're like, well, there's kind of that only with that one project. How do you create a whole website? You know, from one project. Um, so it wasn't clear, and um, I had always wanted to kind of spend more time in Hong Kong. I mean, having studied at the, at the RCA, went back to Hong Kong for a little bit, but then moved to LA again. You know, my plan was like, okay, let's not start a studio in LA and let's, you know, kind of part ways and move back to Hong Kong. So that was when I moved back to Hong Kong and, um, a friend called me at the time and that was, um, um, Tony, he, he was looking at a site at the age of society. Um, and that was the project ammo. Um, and he said, you know, I'm working with a designer. I heard you just moved back to Hong Kong. You know, I really don't like what they've come up with. Can you help me? I need this restaurant done in like two months. You're like, oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was like, okay. I literally went to site that night. And I remember sketching something with him whilst looking at the site. It was just so panicked. And like, he was like, really, we, you know, just need to get this thing open. Um, and I think ammo, ammo was actually the point where it was like, okay, you know, we, we can, you know, I, I think I could have a studio from this. I mean, it wasn't like, I think finding the physical space was, was a huge part of that. Um, and then I think the word of mouth of, of ammo and other people reaching out um, to me to do more work, you know, that, that was an indication of like, okay, I think this is, um, in fact, it was kind of like, well, you cannot not have a studio to do more work in, in many ways because, you know, having a studio is in many ways communicating stability that, you know, you're serious about taking on on another project. And what year was this? 
That was in 2010. And so tell us about ammo. How did that two month process work? And, you know, what did you learn from that? Um, I loved working on that project. I, you know, Tony said, we don't have much time. We don't have much money. <laughs> I remember thinking, okay, let me go to the plumbing shop because I remember seeing a bunch of really beautiful, like plumbing pipes, uh, copper plumbing pipes and, and parts. Um, and I was like, maybe we could use those to create these. The, the space was very tall and it was a glass box. And when you look from the out, a, lo- a, a big part of ammo is this kind of voyeuristic experience of looking at this glass box and seeing, you know, you're, and as you're dining inside, you're kind of in this, in this fishbowl. So creating these like installation, like chandeliers out of copper piping was something that I want to do. And plus like it was the ammunition storage facility um, for the for the British um, army back in the day. So, you know, it, it kind of went hand in hand in that, you know, metallic kind of gun metal um, idea. Um, and I remember draw, you know, doing those drawings um, and then giving them to the contractor and the contractor looked at me like I was crazy. He was like, what, you want us to do what with these pipes? Um, he was very reluctant. And I was like, well, you'll have to like wire in, you know, light bulbs because we want them to be lit. And he was just not having any of it. And it, it didn't look great in front of the client, obviously, because, um, you know, he wanted an idea that could be executed. And I think, you know, that there was definitely that moment where I was like, well, do we just think of somebody else, something else? Because this contractor is obviously not taking me seriously and he doesn't really want to make anything that's so custom um but uh, you know in the end we kind of mocked it up with him you know I basically said well if you can't do it we'll do it together so um I bought the polling pipes we kind of did you know a prototype of it like a module of it together on site and he understood okay this is how you could do it and I think that one lesson has definitely taught me about persistence for one and also um I think showing people that it is possible you know and believing in that if you don't believe in it yourself then other people won't so where do you go from here you did a two-month project you got it done you you know create a beautiful space um is that when you were like okay I can do this like this should be the beginning of Joyce Wang studio or was there still another step before yeah, you got no, no, there that was it no was that it. was it I think Alma was it because I think Hong Kong also has this amazing benefit of being very small and so word travels like oh Joyce did Alma and like you know um at the time you know other people would hear about it and they'd say okay I think I could approach her and work with her and you know just through word of mouth without even worrying about a website um I think my next worry from Alma was was hiring a, a drafter and, you know, actually bringing in a team um, who could help um, execute, um, you know, documentation and, and drawings and, and things like that. So for a while, I think we were like a three to four person team. Right. Well, how big are you yeah. now? So we're 10 in London and 10 in Hong Kong. Oh, wow. That's pretty good size. Yeah. Yeah. So from Ammo, where did you go from there? I mean, were there any other kind of, I mean, Ammo was probably in Roosevelt, probably your two kind of put you on the map projects, but yeah. was, 
Was there another project that you think really kind of helped define, you know, Joyce Wine Studio or you as a designer or, you know, helped you move move forward? Uh, without a doubt, Malt 32. I think it was just such an unexpected uh, turnaround of a site. Like it was a site that nobody wanted. Everybody knew, everybody in Hong Kong knew about the site, but nobody wanted to touch it because it was in the basement. It had no natural light. It was like you had to take two escalators down and then another flight of stairs. There was no straightforward way of getting there. There was no car drop off. You know, that it, it was just destined to be a failure of a restaurant or space, whatever, you know. So it was it was interesting because um, I met Max Small Concepts, who, who are the guys who operate that restaurant. And they're now, you know, opening in Bangkok. They've, we've, we've helped them in, you know, Vancouver, Singapore, Vegas, um, and, you know, looking at more sites. So it, it's a concept that's really um, succeeded. Right. Um, and I think. And who yeah, knows, right? With one project, you knew? know, you never who know. Knew? Like one location can grow into a little mini empire. Definitely not if I, I mean, if I took you down to that space on the, on day one of, of us doing that site visit, there's no way. I mean, it was just this basement, un, unattractive, um, just, you know, nobody would have thought it, it'd be a destination restaurant for sure. Right. And so how did you, how did you approach it? How did you take that challenge and create a solution? Um, I think a huge part of the credit has to go to the the operator. Um, they had an incredible narrative. Um, you know, Matt and Malcolm and Sean, they're they're kind of big sto- big on storytelling, and it, you know, they had you know a backstory of why it's called Mot Thirty Two, you know, who used to live there. Uh, who used to use the space, you know, the, the story and, and the, the traits and characteristics of, of what they liked, um, you know, different habits they might have had, things they might have stored or, or forgotten behind, you know. And I think one one really powerful, um, and maybe like I shouldn't even be saying this, like on a very political note, it's, it's not a Chinese Chinese restaurant, it's a Hong Kong Chinese restaurant. And I think that really strikes a chord with many people um, in Hong Kong in the sense that, you know, Hong Kong has had a very distinct history. Um, you know, we we have influences from British colonialism, Chinese imperialism, you know, the West, and it's kind of a culmination of all of those things. And, you know, Hong Kong Chinese restaurants are either kind of round with tablecloths, you know, very traditional and, and you know, families go and it's very rowdy or they're, you know, more westernized. Mot 32 is, is a marriage of both. You you get people who come in um, who want kind of the banquet food, but also people who are visiting Hong Kong for the first time and they and they want kind of authentic Chinese food, but in a more kind of friendly westernized setting. So it's it's I think it, it you know from the get go there was a really distinctive personality about it, and for me at the time it was one of our I remember being really busy at the time at the studio and there wasn't a specific team that could even work on it. But all I knew was like, oh, we really need to work on this project. So let's, let's make it work guys. I think we we're five people at the time and everybody worked on it. Everybody, 
you know, appalled. Um, I even had Nick, um, a friend of mine who's a jewelry designer, actually freelance on this job with us. And he was responsible for finding accessories, you know, for the project, which was a huge part of it. Um, because each piece of accessory had to tell a different part of the story, you know, whether it be um, uh, weighing scales that they used to use on Mott Street in New York or, um, you know, a bank teller window because, you know, it, it is in the basement of a bank bank and like procuring all these things and stitching together this whole story is a full-time job. Um, and everybody was expending a lot of that same level of energy and detailing into this one space. Um, I think we met you first or found you first after ammo. Um, and then, um, Mott 32 though you won. I mean, it just got written up everywhere. It was just such an insta hit. Did you think that would be the reaction to it? You know, winning all those kind of awards and also won, you know, great food and service and quality back to, you know, the operator, um, did you think it would have that success or again, doing something you never really know, right? <laughs> you never really know. I, I know. I, I think, like I said, for the studio, it was, it was everybody's project mm -hmm. and it was honestly looking back, probably one of the most fun, I felt the most fun project the studio has ever had working on, I think because the client's were just like so busy with opening, you know, at the time, Max Moore, they were opening like, you know, five other restaurant concepts. And usually they design in-house and they just said, you know, Joyce, we normally don't work with, you know, outside designers. We normally design in-house, but because we don't have enough time, you guys are just going to have to do it. So they gave us a lot of freedom. Um, the story was very specific, um, but how we interpreted it was completely left to us, you know, like free. Um, so I, I think at the time we had, we had no idea what it was going to do. Um, and definitely did not think it was going to, you know, I, I think you, you do work with clients who say, you know, I think this concept might be translatable globally. We were looking to open in other places, but I think Mot 32 really stood behind that. And it was, definitely wasn't something that I, I had expected. Right. And how did you translate it to, I mean, I've eaten at the one in Vegas, which is super just immersive and cool and you just want to hang out in it. And, you know, you never kind of want to leave that space, which I think is, you know, what you do very well is the level of detail that just, you know, every time you go into one of your spaces, I feel like you get a, you know, a new experience, but one that's just as exciting as the next. And so how did you translate that into Las Vegas and then also Vancouver? How did you take that downstairs underground yeah. concept and then create it in yeah. spaces that are, you know, the exact opposite? <laughs> I think with Vegas, like we wanted to do something that was larger than life. Mm -hmm. Um, knowing about, you know, the culture of exhibitionism, you know, and, you know, all the way from that to just having larger groups of people actually come in to dine and how the space and concept could accommodate for that. Um, you know, the level of showmanship that people are used to and expecting when they visit Vegas. Um, you know, it was, it was kind of a, a ramped up Mot 32, um, you know, for that purpose, you know, we created chandeliers that was inspired by the roulette um, table and, and, you know, neon kind of plays on neon lighting and, and turning that into um, different moments within the space. 
you know, we, we didn't, we didn't want it to be overtly Vegas, but at the same time, um, you know, we, we want it to be authentic to Model 32 more than, more than anything else. And I think um, the site kind of successfully marries that those two kind of uh, that spectrum of like, okay, what is, what is Model 32 and what is um, Vegas? Right. And how do you, you guys do a lot of restaurants and I mean, we'll get to your other work beyond restaurants in a minute, but how do you, what, what do you think dining should be, right? Like, do you have kind of a systematic approach to, you know, what a restaurant needs to be or, you know, a kind of thought process in your studio? So we don't get involved when we don't believe in the food. That's always the main thing. I was like, okay, if you want us to work on this restaurant, we have to have a taste test. Because, I mean, in many ways, it, it is such a letdown. We have worked on, um, you know, places before where, you know, the, the design kind of sings, but the food is a letdown or, you know, I, I mean, I guess, you know, to be fair, it doesn't work vice versa either. But as designers, we want to make sure, first and foremost, the food is taken care of. Mm-hmm. Um, the food, the people, the ambiance, you know, the, I think the restaurateur caring about the food that experience, it actually translates to everything else. And so obviously you've done a lot more besides restaurants. So I don't even know where to begin, but to start, I mean, I feel like we should talk about Equinox and um, that partnership and how you've been helping them, you know, evolve what design is for fitness and health and well-being and kind of how important that is today, especially amidst covid yeah. Um, so we started, actually, I met Aaron Richter, who I know has been on another um, podcast of yours, Stacey. Yeah. Um, so we met we met Aaron in London way before we even started working together. I think, I think um, Aaron, like yourself, kind of had a pulse on the studio really early on, and, and he knew he wanted to work with us day one, you know, and... Uh, you know, I think he looked at Ammo when it was first published and he said, okay, I want to work with you. We don't have a site yet. But we met we met at a potential site in London, which, which never came of anything. Uh, nothing ever came of it. Um, but Aaron then contacted us maybe a year or two after that first meeting and said, I think we have a project for you guys. Um, and that was the St. James um, site um, for the e-club. And I think working with with Aaron and his team um, and Chris Norton out of Equinox, it's been such a wild kind of experience of, um, you know, really working with a gym, but we never think of it that way. Um, It's so much about, you know, the lifestyle. And I think even as we were doing the gym, in many ways, the thought process was beyond the gym, you know, it was like, you know, doing, creating the experience, you know, the guest experience of how you could elevate the idea of working out, how could, how the design could be provocative to the experience of working out and, you know, how you could create amenity surrounding health and wellness and um, create longer stay environments with retail and F&B and, you know, Areas where people could feel comfortable enough to work after their workout and socialize, etc. So yeah, so it's so much more than just a gym. It's you know almost a destination for people. 
Yeah. Yeah. And then you also got to work on the one at Hudson Yards. Yes. Um, so that, that we, we worked on the wellness, the spa, um, the spa level and also the fitness level. So it included the indoor pool, outdoor pool, the treatment rooms, relaxation areas, the fitness studios, the gym floor, um, the reception. And, um, it was incredible in that, you know, I remember when, you know, Chris and Aaron would speak about this concept of, you know, doing a flagship Equinox hotel and, you know, it, you know, nothing had, you know, this, remember this is the flagship, nothing existed before then. And, you know, wanting to compete with, you know, the, the luxury of brands of, you know, the Four Seasons, the Mandarin Oriental in, in the city. And, and, you know, definitely I had my doubts in the beginning of like, you know, how would we accomplish this with a gym essentially? Um, and I think, you know, now that you see how the whole space functions and how, you know, at the time when we first worked on it, we thought, wow, they're really dedicating the prime real estate to the gym floor and the spa levels. This is unheard of. You know, normally gyms are stuck in basements with no natural light. Um, this is the exact opposite of that. They've, they've placed in the most kind of prized um, area of the building with incredible views of Thomas Heatherwick sculpture um, you know, um, you know, really high ceilings, natural light. And, you know, as, as a hot, uh, you know, somebody who, you know, cares about wellness, health, when you travel, this is, this is one of those hotels, I think probably the only one that you can receive that amount of care. Um, you know, as you check in, you know, the concierge is recommending, health and fitness programs, you know, um, attending to your spa appointments, making recommendations about, um, you know, diet, fitness, you know, if, if you're already kind of an Equidox member and they know that you're training for a mar marathon, for example, and, you know, they have all your stats. So it, it's really this idea of like a holistic um, hospitality that doesn't just center around, here's your room with a really comfy bed. You know, it's, it's really catering to making you feel good about your body and um, making you feel like, you know, you've, you, you're leaving the hotel a better, you know, more well-performing person than you are, which is incredible. Right. Right. Especially I think today, you know, like wellness was already having its moment. Right. Um, and now with COVID, I think it's going to be even more important as people start to travel is how can you continue to take care of yourself? Exactly. Yes. Yep. Yep. And the space is huge. I know you said flagship, but I think it's one of their largest um, wellness yeah. facilities. Yeah. I think it's 20,000 square feet. So, you know, some designers have a look, right? And that's what people hire mm. them for. But I feel like, you know, you guys kind of adapt to, you know, the location and where, you yep. know, and what the project is. But, you know, what is good design to you? What, what do you tell your team? How do you, you know, what's the what do you try to achieve through your design? Cause I feel like there is that kind of underlying um, co conversation or, you know, dialogue that exists in all of your spaces, even though they don't look the same, but there's still a, a, a feeling that kind of exists in each one. Yeah. I think, 
we uh, first of all, I think it starts at the at the beginning of of kind of entertaining new business and figuring out what what projects we we should be working on. I I think we have to have a passion in that city or want to find out more about it. If it's not a place that we would normally want to visit or be curious about, you know, its people and and to meet um, people who live there or or want to understand how they live, it there's probably not much point to design for it, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I think you have to be curious about a, a place um, and understand, you know, derive kind of a material palette to tell a story that's authentic to that place. And in many ways, I feel like it's like Pygmalion, where you're chipping away at marble to reveal kind of this beautiful girl who's like always been there. And I think when you hit that right chord, you just kind of know, okay, this feels right. And like, it's interesting. I remember one of the first lessons with the Roosevelt was, you know, at the time my friend and I, we were compiling a material board in our makeshift studio and it looked right there. But then we took the material board on site to the Roosevelt and it looked all wrong. It just didn't belong. Um, you know, we had like a different tone of upholstery and then we had to bring the materials to that space, to that light. And then there was kind of this aha moment between the two of us. And, and we just thought, okay, this is, this is something that feels, feels right. You need something fresh. You know, there's the water outside. It kind of brings, so you kind of forget, you know, you, you know, how important context is. With that in mind, has there been some major, who has been the biggest influencers in your work today? I mean, I know you worked for Sir Foster and you've, um, I'm sure he was one, but are there others that um, you, you get inspired by or you watch their work or, you know, you know, and it doesn't have to be just an interior designer architecture. It could be in other facets of design. I, I'm hugely inspired by my team. I have to say there's, there's, um, we're a team of individuals who, um, you know, I feel like a lot of them work harder than I do. And I'm, I'm definitely inspired by that every day. Um, it makes me feel, um, uh, you know, I, I want to give my best because I have, you know, a really incredible team who really care about the studio. Um, and I think that, you know, for me, that that's a huge part of it. That's a huge part of um, why I devote as much as I do. And, um I think drawing that energy from each other, that's, that's been an incredible honor. Um, I remember as I was working at Foster's, um, my boss at the time, Michael Gentz, um, you know, it, it was really difficult hours and it was a lot of hard work. Um, but I remember, you know, I had to build this, this model and, you know, he came with me to, to buy materials for it. And it was kind of odd hours. I had to stay really late. And he, he sent me a message in the end and he just said, thank you. You know, I really appreciate that. And I remember how much that message had meant to me. Um, and I guess that's that's kind of paid it forward to how um, how appreciative I am of the team as well, because I know um, how little things can can really make an impact. And um, what would you wish you had known, you know, your firm is 10 years old, give or take a year. Um, and what, what do you wish you had known then that you know now or, you know, how has it evolved in a way that was, you know, 
somewhat surprising to what you thought, you know, looking back. I'm not sure I know anything more now than I did before. <laughs> um, That's true, too. I, I guess I'm like, I think it goes back to what we were saying before about as you're doing something, you kind of, you don't really know the impact of it until probably later on. And I think for me at the beginning of my career, it was, you know, the, the decisions of what projects that I could take on versus what I couldn't. And I think making that decision to, to stay small from the beginning has made it so much easier to stay true to that later on. And I think when you announce that to people, um, people then understand it. People understand that as your priority um, versus if you were wishy-washy or you're unsure, then I think it becomes difficult to, um, to kind of wait off the, the pressure of, oh, maybe we'll take on a couple more projects, you know? And, and I think because that statement is clear to the team, you know, when anybody applies, you know, it's, it's, clear that there will only be 10 seats in the London studio and only be 10 seats ever in the Hong Kong studio. There's no kind of, you know, and, and we're not, you know, going to be renting another space to accommodate more, pro you know, to accommodate more people to work on more projects. You know, that's, that's not the kind of studio I'm interested in building. So I think that has made a lot of decisions easier later on because of that clarity in the beginning. Um, and we always end uh, the podcast with, you know, what, you know, it's titled what I've learned. What has been that great greatest lesson learned? I mean, I'd say the greatest lesson is probably saying no is probably as important as saying yes to things. And, you know, when I reflect on things that I've said no to, that's actually opened up doors to other things. And, um, you know, that's, that's probably the greatest lesson learned without, yeah, complicating it too much. No, simple. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. I know it's late your time and I've loved catching up with you. I could talk to you for another couple hours, but thank you so much <laughs> for taking the time to, to do this so with much, us. Stacey. Thanks for listening to Hospitality Designs, What I've Learned. If you like what you've heard, subscribe and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find full episodes and transcripts at hospitalitydesign.com.